Hello and welcome to New Oral Cultures. I'm Dario Linares. It's good to be back after what has been, what has felt like a rather lengthy summer hiatus. I'm enjoying right now the dwindling embers of the summer glow here in London. In fact, it's quite warm, it's just 10 o'clock in the morning, but it's, uh, it's definitely a beautiful day outside. I have read that the, uh, the listening audience for podcasting actually drops off in the summer quite, quite markedly. I think that's certainly the case for me, going on holiday. I mean, I took podcasts with me and was listening to them throughout the summer, but certainly not with the frequency that I do for the rest of the year. We definitely decided to take a hiatus from New Oral Cultures and the other podcast I do, The Cinematologists. But now September is back upon us. It's time to get back in the saddle. Um, and it's good to be back. I haven't been totally idle over the August period. In fact, I've taped several interviews with podcasting researchers, which we have in the can, and we're going to be releasing over what will hopefully be a more regular pattern in the in the coming months. Our plan is to kind of build new oral cultures going forward and interview as many people as we can. Yeah, listening to the many podcasting gurus who are, who are out there, Regular listening is apparently the key to podcast growth. So hopefully there might be some truth in that and we we continue to grow this podcast. And if you're a listener out there and you're a podcasting researcher or you've got something interesting that you want to contribute to the debate about podcasting or the growing field of podcast studies, um, please get in touch. My contact details will be up on the show notes. There's definitely a lot of interesting research that is going on that, that reflects podcasting's use in many different fields, both as fundamentally just a platform for disseminating research in all kinds of areas, which is one of the kind of um, interdisciplinary benefits, I think, of podcasting, but also the very idea of podcasting being used as a research tool, which is something that I'm increasingly interested in thinking about and doing. So podcasting for me particularly coincides with the start of the academic year here in in the UK. Um, I'm just refreshing all of my materials and doing some new research and uh, teaching preparation for when everything all starts up in a uh, couple of weeks' time with the, the joys and wonders of what is known as Welcome Week. But at the same time, there's a lot of podcasting conferences going on. Very soon, it's the ACREA, European Communication Research and Education Association radio conference at the University of Siena. Um, John Sullivan and Richard Berry are going to that, two of the authors from, from our book. And they're going to be doing some taping out there. There's a lot of interesting work looking at the program. A lot of good stuff, which we don't really hear about as much as we should, perhaps, on, on non-English language podcasting contexts. That's certainly an area that needs much greater focus when it comes to looking at what the the podcasting world is doing let's say and also there there are a lot of the the big names in podcasting research are out there so it'd be interesting to see uh, if uh, Richard and John get some uh, some tape from the likes of Andrew Bottomley and Tizanio Bonini and uh, Martin Spinelli of course who's also been on the podcast previously and Lance Dan his uh, collaborator on, on their podcasting book. Yeah, so um, hopefully we'll get some great tape from uh, from John and Richard. On the 11th of October, there's a, there's a conference taking place in Mainz in Germany, which is near Frankfurt, called Podcasting Poetics, at which I've been invited to give a keynote, which I'm very much looking forward to, which actually I need to make a start on, you know, organisation and all of that kind of stuff. 
Um, I'm tentatively calling it Podcasting and the Techno Discursive Futures of Sound, which sounds very grand. But what I'm going to try and do is link podcasting to the wider phenomenon, sound technologies, and how they're becoming more integrated into our daily lives and what effect that might have on, on how we understand knowledge and communication. And then, of course, the Sound Education Conference is taking place in Boston, which is the same dates as the uh, as the Podcasting Poetics Conference, which is the October the 9th to the 12th. And that brings me neatly to today's guest, Joseph Friedman, who is, among other things, the Executive Director of the Sound Education Conference. I've been wanting to talk to Joseph for a while. I've... Um, Followed him on social media, and uh, always he's always posting interesting stuff, particularly around um, science communication, which is his educational background. And also, he works at the Interdisciplinary Effective Science Lab in Northeastern University General Hospital, um, where he lives in Boston. And he's also a freelance producer for radio and podcasts, and has made recordings for NPR, Slate, Gimlet, The New York Times, and many others. Um, yeah, had a really fascinating and interesting discussion with him. I really, really enjoyed it. And we touched on so many areas. But listening back in the edit, it seems that what we kind of really get into is the fundamentals of the relationship between communication and knowledge and what podcasting's effect on that might be. I've tried to put as many links to the references and the events mentioned as I can on the website. But for now, this is me talking with Joseph Friedman. Joseph, thanks so much for speaking to us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Daria. I'm so glad that we get to chat. There's lots of stuff that um, I want to talk to you about today, and we'll go through your fields of interest as we go along. I think if we, if I tried to list them at the beginning, it would take half the podcast. But um, your background is in science communication, science education, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about your journey through university, how you got to the point that you are at now and what what sort of brought you into that field of interest? Yeah, so I I think my first love academically was cognitive musicology. Um, So I was a kid, I used to get driven around a lot by my brother, by my parents, Uh, used to have to take a very long bus ride to school. And it was always fascinating to me that you could use music to soundtrack your experience and to make yourself feel in a certain way, that it was a reliable form of regulation. Sure. And that this was intentional and that somehow people knew how to, you know, create sounds that could, could evoke such complex emotions and memories and associations. And so I remember picking up a book at summer camp once called This Is Your Brain on Music by a guy named Daniel Levitin, who teaches at McGill now. Yeah, and that really set me off. Um, I begged my parents to let me take a cognitive uh, psychology course over the summer. They're uh, Russian Jews. They were trained as applied mathematicians and engineers. Um, and so they were much more interested in me taking things like math logic and data and chance. Uh, <laughs> but I was very excited to take cognitive psychology. I did that in 2008. I think I was 13 that summer. Um, and I've loved psychology and cognitive science ever since. Um, when I got to college, uh, there was this wonderful program where you could assemble your own major. You could, you know, create your own program of study. Okay. What university was that at? Was that Cornell, if I, if I read that right? Yep, yep. And it was in the School of Arts and Sciences, but it let you take courses all over the college, undergraduate, graduate courses. 
Um, and it really gave me the freedom, I think, to, to meet a lot of people that were studying things like neurobiology, evolution, uh, um, a field called uh, EvoDevo, or looking at, um, you know, the brain and the nervous system from both an evolutionary and developmental point of view. Right. So to see how, you know, like the nervous system can arise in any particular individual of any species, but also how it differentiates and evolves over, you know, the entire phylogenetic tree. So in a sense, that crossover between what you'd call cognitive um, psychology in the broadest sense and the effect on that of sound and the emotions of sound and the constructions of sound, I'd say is probably your specialism. But I don't know, do you feel like that you've, I don't want to say have been lucky, but it seems to me that kind of cognitive psychology is a thing of the moment right now, you know what I mean? It seems to be written about in lots of different kinds of areas. And and from your background, do you, do you have a sort of reason for that? Why the, it seems to be taken up? I mean, I think a lot of it is to do with the way that the advertising and then social media and digital communications are affecting us psychologically. So I don't know, is that, do, would you agree with that? Yeah, so when it got time to write my senior honors thesis, um, a thing that I was struck by is that the same type of paradigms that we think about developing in the lab, um, developing over the course of military investment in science, over the course of um, just the, the sprouting up of behavioral science departments all, of the, all over the, the United States and, and, and in Europe, all of these techniques were being taken into the corporate world. And so, um, you know, I felt like I was sometimes the same type of experimental subject in my own life, yeah. whether or not it's what's being pushed to me as an ad or as a recommended bit of listening, and that the same type of techniques were being used on me that I was being taught, um, you know, that could be used on human beings and experiments to predict their behavior. Right. I think Shoshana Zuboff has a wonderful book about this called Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one I haven't read, but I think it's on my shelf somewhere. <laughs> I think she captures that beautifully, though, that kind of like um, recursion between academia and the corporate world and the ways that, you know, mm. you know, whenever we develop a technique to understand ourselves better, it's going to be used on us yeah. to, to get something from us better. I, th I, th I think I do think that we give behavioral scientists of all stripes a lot of license um, to pontificate about all sorts of things, um, especially on podcasts uh, where they can tell us, you know, what the meaning of the world is in a way that physicists or chemists or botanists might not. Yeah. And I think also it perhaps has also taken over from social sciences, or maybe there's a sort of crossover going on now where the idea of the social um, transformations that may have occurred, again, if we're talking about technology or, you know, we could even be talking about politics or climate change or whatever it might be, suddenly cognitive psychology has become a, maybe a, a trend because it, it puts the onus back on the individual rather than on society as a whole. And I think that within the capitalist cultures we, we live in, particularly in the West, obviously, that moving things on onto the individual means that they don't have to be kind of dealt with by corporations. And I suppose that's the, the underlying ideology of that mindfulness everything is put onto the individual and it's up to us as individuals to to deal with everything that in society and i think that i mean i find that quite problematic i don't know how you feel about it yeah i mean it's fascinating like the um we, we treat it as natural that people are their brains and the idea that like you know if you say that people's brains make them do something that that's the most natural powerful explanation of a behavior of a phenomena but um, there's a, another wonderful book. It's called Being Brains, Making the Cerebral Subject. It came out, what um, was wonderful paperback, I think just came out this summer. And uh, yeah, it says Lockean possessive individualism. That's where you get uh, the beginnings of the idea that the human being as a self is located uh, in the brain. And then, you know, 
there's obviously centuries of kind of science and society turning in on themselves to develop that. But, you know, it's not it's not the only way to think about where we can get meaning and explanation from. Yeah. But it's really, really powerful today. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Um, in terms of your work in in what would broadly be called science communication. It's interesting that very concept as a sort of philosophical proposition, because, you know, if you talk to certain scientists, I suppose, that idea of an objective reality that can be tested doesn't require any communication that would have an impact on that objective reality. But uh, people who are interested in science communication obviously do have an awareness that the way that you communicate information actually has a bearing on the truth that is being told. So I don't know, maybe you could explain a little bit to us about how you see science communication and your your kind of approach to it. Yeah, well, I'll, ju- I'll just say, I mean, I'm getting starting out in the field, so I'm just getting my bearings too. Um, but there's this idea that, you know, um, you know, we fund people to do science in laboratories at universities, at um, other types of research institutions, happens in the corporate world, um, governments do it. Um, and then somehow that information has to actually impact people's lives or make them better in some way. And so, and so all of these scientists that are being funded to do research are in some sense knowledge workers, right? They produce knowledge yep. um, and they produce something called the knowledge object, which has to make its way around society and has to cross borders of different types. And so we know that the shape of that knowledge object, whether it's a conference paper or a conversation over beer or a conversation over coffee or a late night phone call or an email or a research report or a journal article or a podcast or a film or, you know, an offhand conversation on a plane, each of those is a type of knowledge object that crosses some type of border that, you know, will impact some type of audience. We used to think that um, you could just... That, that, what, that what the general public or any audience that wanted to know more ju- just didn't have enough information. So this was called the deficit model of communication. I'm not particularly sure, but it feels also related to kind of the, the Shannon model of communication, right? Where you just have this like box and arrow plot where you have some sort of producer of information, you have some noise added, you have a receiver, you have some processing. And so you just encode properly to get across and then it's decoded. And the reception would be be almost untainted or, or for want of a better word, pure. There would be no in, no sort of questioning of the mediatory process, perhaps. Exactly. And that's, I'd say that we're always learning and relearning that that's not true. Mm. So I'd say that there, that there was a lot of really good philosophy of science um, over the past 100 years or so. Um, there was the birth of an entire field called science and technology and society or science and technology studies, STS, um, that examines how you know, facts are made, how that interacts with power and roles and institutions and objects, um, and how they circulate uh, around in the world um, through people, through language, through technology. But there's a paper I've been going back to a lot now um, by someone named Dietram Schiffele, um, who teaches uh, the science communication at uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. It's in PNIS, I think it's 2014, but it's uh, that science is actually experienced through mediated realities, Mm. that we experience science at the doctor's office, you know, in the course of a legal proceeding, in entertainment, and that each of these different types of mediated realities is shaped by an entire other group of producers, and they they, they mediate the, the transfer of some, some amount of knowledge. I think we all kind of know this is true because we can learn something in school, we could have a friend explain it to us, or we could hear it on a podcast, and the same principle or fact or historical story will impact us differently. We'll remember it in a different way when we're thinking about it 
the next day in the shower or on the ride to work. Yeah, no, it's it's so true, isn't it? I mean, you could almost sort of say the spectrum between what is traditionally called the, the doctor's bedside manner is is a form of mediation right up to the, the most ideological battles over climate change, you know, and everything be, in between are a process by which the knowledge object, as you, as you call it, is presented to an audience and then received. And sometimes it's just the case of who says something as to whether it is taken, you know, particularly in, in partisan circles, maybe in the United States and, and to maybe to a lesser extent in, in the UK. But I mean, I, I suppose, do you think that the the nature of science communication has expanded and the importance of it has expanded in almost parallel with the way that, that media communications possibilities is expanded over the last 20 or 30 years? I think so. I think it's kind of inconceivable that a position like mine of a, you know, a science communications practitioner uh, would exist in, you know, even a laboratory as big as ours. Like we have a a fairly well-funded, fairly prominent um, lab that does behavioral science. Um, But even, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the idea that there would be funding, institutional support, even recognition amongst, um, you know, uh, the profession that it was important to have somebody in-house, separate from the university PR team that's thinking critically about how to get the lab's ideas into the world, how to communicate to journalists, to tech companies, to policymakers, to advocacy groups. Um, I think that that's a new development. And, you know, I mean, it's in in some sense, it's always a little kind of laggy. Um, Science is a pretty conservative institution in its communication compared to, say, sports or entertainment. But I mean, it's growing and I'm, I'm I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of witnessing like a generation kind of spark up around me of just like other people my age that are interested in it. Yeah. And there's, um, we're really lucky that there are also like some folks uh, o- older than us that have kind of been paving the way and, you know, creating the, the funding mechanisms and, and the theories and the, you know, the, the meeting places for us to, to be working these things out. So do you see a difference then between what you do in terms of process, but also kind of philosophically. And I mean, you've already said between the marketing and PR of, let's say, I don't know, pharmaceuticals or something like that, clearly there would be a difference between those two things. But then what you might more popularly call sort of science journalism, you know, and the idea of of what a science journalist does in terms... I mean, I, I suppose maybe, I mean, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that the difference is that the science journalist is actually looking to critique a particular theory or outcome of science in not in a specific way, but to have that kind of aspiration towards objectivity in the journalism, whereas maybe you're aiming more toward communicating what the possibilities of the of the science are on a more in-depth level. I mean, I don't know. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a huge debate going on in the field about what the difference between an institutional communicator is and what a journalist is. Um, I think that there was um, there's a lot of talk, for example, in the National Association of Science Writers um, about that that kind of split and whether, you know, like how big the tent should be for these groups. Does the inclusion of one um, exist to the detriment of the other? And that's sorry, that's a, that's a that's a stateside reference. Yeah. But I mean, um, I, I also I mean, so part of my job is still definitely research. Like I write articles, I'll read the literature, I'll help um, do different experiments uh, in the lab. Um, and so in that way, I'm definitely like the place where I'm sitting and the fact that I'm situated in this lab means that I'm going to tell the story and the histories that I tell in a particular way. Even I think even institutional professionals do things like uh, um, hedge and, um, you know, admit weaknesses of, of approaches and admit 
um, ethical complications and uh, limitations, drawbacks, all of those things that you would kind of expect maybe like, uh, you know, a more like Madison Avenue advertising person to kind of leave out. Um, but I'm definitely also not, I mean, I'm trying to get trained as a science journalist so that I can uh, go, you know, to different, different places around the world and just kind of tell a story in the most kind of accurate, ethical, compelling way. Um, what do you think are, the, are some of the biggest challenges in terms of um, presenting science in a way that doesn't automatically um, fall into the traps of being connected with certain agendas? I mean, I think that's the, you know, that that's the biggest problem we've got with facts, you know, more, more broadly. And, you know, we, we can all sort of talk about the arenas that we're in there now. But it, it seems to me that, that the public is so... I find it so difficult now to disassociate something that they hear in the news or in the media that is told to them with having a kind of bad faith agenda behind it. You know, where has this come from? What are these What are these people getting out of it when they're saying this? So, you know, obviously the kind of climate change situation is the big one. It's it's framed within an ideological agenda but and, and that clouds the very possibility of getting out the, the the pure information, I suppose. <laughs> so what's happening with knowledge today? Um, <laughs> yeah, is there any left? <laughs> yeah, th- there are a lot of things going on. Um, one of them is this kind of partisan sorting that you're talking about, where today more than ever, if I ask you a single policy question, I can probably guess with very high accuracy your answer to 10 other policy questions that didn't used to be the case. And I think that that's even true now with certain types of affect and performance around knowledge honestly. So just explain what you mean by that. That just by the way that you approach a particular, like the way that you approach building up a particular fact or story, I can probably tell what your politics are in general, Mm. or at least in today's media environment, I think I can. Within 10 seconds of watching, you know, a particular news clip, you know, even without the the chyrons blazing underneath the, the reporter or, you know, the logo in the top right, pretty quickly I'll be able to tell just by the aesthetics of something, it's politics and it's ethics. Um, and that those things are definitely always connected. But I think today more than ever, you flag membership to a group with one thing and it dog whistles everything else on, 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 on every side of any multi-sided issue. So I think that's one thing. Um, so you have to even be careful in your affect or approach to a story. Sure. Is there not also another issue in terms of the difficulty that scientists may have today if they do a piece of research and it provides, let's say, results that don't fit into uh, accepted agendas? You know, all you can do is take what they say on good faith that they have researched this subject and it's produced this outcome. And, And let's say if it doesn't fit with certain requirements in terms of political correctness around gender or race or class is there a sort of fear that that leads to even even you know not speaking about these results in a in a clear and honest way i mean so i think i think every aspect of the scientific process so you can imagine it as like this big circle where you ideate some research project you design a study for it you get some sort of funding you collect data you assign people to roles to process that data um, you kind of iterate within that, um, and there's a lot of debate in the different science communities about how much you should iterate on the fly, you know, when, when you're doing an experiment. You get all of your data, you start analyzing your results, you figure out what your results are, and then you put them into the world. 
I think every stage of that is to some degree um, laden with ideology and assumptions uh, and agenda. And so, you know, it's often at the last step that we think that we should intervene and say, you know, you should limit your kind of the extrapolations you're making from this data. You know, you studied 300 individuals of this species and you collected this amount of data and you found using this analysis, this statistical, uh, you know, indicator of some truth. But that's never the way that it's, you know, that's not a headline. And so part of this is that the way that scientists are, you know, in the best ways taught to speak to to express uncertainty and certainty with very high degrees of precision and with a blend of confidence and modesty, um, that just doesn't make for good science communication often. Um, or I, I think we're struggling and trying to think about ways in which you can get across um, those sorts of points, which might not make for good tape or might not make for a compelling story. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I think the science that gets to be the loudest always does to some degree set the agenda and then other scientists are then pressured to catch up. Yeah. And, and, and I suppose as well, even more in the kind of clickbait universe we live in now, there's always the, the immediate search for the headline grabbing piece of information. And that becomes a kind of black and white tale about something, you know what I mean? Rather than here is the spectrum of possibility within these results. Do you know what I mean? And it could be so, it could be just minutiae of variation here or there. And and nobody really wants to hear that, in, especially in the, in the very sort of overt partisan media. So it's trying to sort of temper those two positions, I suppose. Where's the headline story that's going to grab the interest? And where's the nuance and the, you know, the particularities of a, of, of a given study? And I think there are even multiple types of nuance. So what we're describing is like a very like traditional type of nuance that is like generally recognized as good and positive, this kind of like positivist nuance that we could say something definite about the universe. We just have to be really particular about it. Um, and then you could also imagine a type of like constructionist nuance that recognizes that sciences comes from a particular time, place, from particular bodies, from particular languages, and that those all create a kind of substrate of ideas upon which the science should also be expressed in a particularly nuanced way. Yeah, and the forms of particular ways in which a media discourse will formulate around science information, science communication, that will be, again, particular to a time and a place. And a, and a context so different things could be pulled out at different times in in depending on various factors some of which could be just accidental but but very definitely there are ad agendas of a given time and moment that would would force the headline i think that, that that's very true um it's interesting obviously speaking to someone who who uses podcasting around science communication and i think a lot of the work that i've been doing is trying to kind of figure out the ways in which podcasting may be slightly different from other media, particularly if you think about the fact that podcasting is a sort of combination of old media techniques and old media ways of communicating, at, but is completely embedded technologically into a, into the new media environment. So I just wondered whether, you know, are, are there distinguishing or distinctive factors or reasons why podcasting is is good in terms of science communication or media education more broadly for you? I think there's a lot of really incredible and really popular science storytelling that happens on podcasts that we don't see in other media. Right. Uh, and I think, uh, obviously, I'm thinking about all of the flagship uh, NPR shows um, and the kind of spinoffs from them. So things like, you know, Radiolab, obviously, I, I, know, I know you've spoken a lot about, but shows like Invisibilia, Hidden Brain, Science Friday, Undiscovered. 
I mean, I think all of them to some degree um, are innovating. Uh, in, in, you know, people uh, that have written for your book and for others have theorized about what it is that they're doing to kind of diversify the types of voices or the types of sounds that we're used to hearing. Is it at bottom something to do with sound over text, perhaps? Because it's sound and because it's voice, it has to be articulated and broken down in a certain kind of way, which is more personal, conversational, authentic, any of those words that you want to use that is attached to podcasting. But also, um, I mean, I wrote a little bit about sort of Malcolm Gladwell and the way he talks about this, that there's a what he terms a conditionality of meaning. There's when you're listening to something being articulated through sound and through the voice, you're much more open to a recognition that this person is working through something in a way that doesn't have a definitive ending you know that the like a say an academic paper implies that it does because it's set down in text yeah i, I think i remember the quote you're you're talking about and i think what he's saying is that um, there's a reason that scientists privilege uh, and honor and practice doing conference presentations and one-on-one -on -one discussion so much mm. um, and why they're trained to engage in active debates about whatever data it is that they're doing um, and which is why I, I don't know to some degree whenever you fixate a paper you you lexicalize all of the all of the points that you're trying to make about something mm. um, you know it's kind of like the death of possibility for interpretation um, I think we're definitely working on version control for um, scientific papers uh, there's a question I sometimes ask professors which is you know you go back through your whole CV um, print out every paper uh, and you highlight everything that you don't agree with anymore. Right. Um, how much of it you highlight probably, you know, at any given point in time, a particularly large amount. Um, and then the question is, how are people supposed to know that? Mm. And I, th I think when you listen to someone speak, you can hear their um, epistemic commitments in a way that you sometimes can't um, when you're listening, you know, to when you're reading an interview of them or you're reading a paper of theirs hmm. um i was i think i think it was in your conversation with martin spinelli he's kind he's you know contrasting something like radiolab where you can hear somebody struggling with a truth themselves and they'll choose that really juicy tape of somebody um you know prevaricating about something going back and forth um that you might not get on another type of media um and i think that it's something that at least when i've been taught how to produce podcast and how to log tape you know, <laughs> you can you can be taught how to look for moments like that uh, and if you should use them or not. Um, and I think it's a particular like ethical and intellectual and epistemological decision if you're going to do that or not. Yeah. Um, do you see a future where, say, for example, podcasting or some kind of audio methodology could be much more fully integrated, say, into the research methodology overall of a science research project the reason i'm saying that is that in a sense there's that assumption that that when somebody's doing a podcast it is just it is just the conduit or the platform through which the knowledge again in its sort of pure objective form is translated so so it just it retains that sense of just being a kind of uh, a bridge of articulation but is there a case to be made that let's say for example a, a a scientist who is recording or speaking about his practice as he goes along or there is some kind of recording that takes place between the, his participants or research subjects in that sense could actually have some bearing 
on the you know the scientific outcomes as the project moves forward rather than just articulating the results at the very end kind of thing so i think i think every scientist to some degree recognizes that they have to do pr for a particular piece of work they'll write a long twitter thread they'll present at a conference they'll go around to other labs yeah um you know but some scientists have their own podcasts and so um there's i think that there's an entire genre of scientists sharing a beer over skype Right. Um, yeah, and yeah, talking yeah. about career issues, talking about the latest issues in their subfield about their own work. Yeah. Um, and I think when you listen, if, if, you know, if you've listened to one of those archives and you're in that field, you, first of all, have a really incredible either social relationship with, with them if you're responding or parasocial relationship where, you know, there's someone, they're a voice in your head mm. um, and you can think with their um with their intellectual ethic um, about something yeah. um, over time. Uh, and so I, I would be really excited about a world in which there's much more of that. And then scientists in laboratories across the country are experimenting um, with how much to let people into their process, how much of their lab meetings or ideation meetings um, are open to the people that are interested. Mm. Um, the problem with something like that is that, um, you know, I was really excited about that after having graduated school and going into a going into a lab. But then I realized, you know, there's there's such thin margins for how much time people have. People are already crazily overworked. Yeah, yeah, yeah of um, course. And to make themselves vulnerable sure. uh, enough to do something like that, it's. Um, but it's going to be, you know, it's it, it's going to be the young. I think it's going to be like a young cohort of professors. You know, the, the current kind of early mid-career folks are already doing quite well with their podcasts. I think the next generation that decides to do it, that's already used to being very vulnerable about their difficulties on things like Twitter, are going to use podcasts. And people are going to listen and get a lot of joy and comfort from being able to relate to those folks. Sure. And I think it's probably more much more difficult in kind of classical STEM uh, lab-based work to do something like that, but but I definitely think there would there would be a possibility in in relationship to something like cognitive psychology, for example. So, you know, I mean, I, and even maybe in in sort of uh, matters of education. So, I mean, one of the things that we're doing right now is we're we're putting a lot of the readings that we're asking students to do in podcasts and podcasts that they can listen to, say, on on the bus or on the train on the way into in, into university. And and you know, there's the obvious help that that will give to students with dyslexia but also that idea of how much information one takes in when one is reading a a 20 page in-depth paper and if the paper itself is just um articulated via audio that be, would be one level and then um if somebody kind of explained the paper as it was going along that could be like another level so it would be interesting i think in that regard to see the relationship between how we process information, how we process knowledge between sound and, and text using something like like podcasting and cognitive psychology. I mean, there are a lot of different ideas in there about what we about what we could do to help people learn, um, how we could help not just students in, at universities, but just help democratize knowledge in general. Um, I think we're thinking a lot about that um, through sound education um, and through the conference and trying to find... Uh, sure different kind of minimal viable products or experiments for different types of engagement. But I mean, you know, it's some people treat it as its own form of knowledge production. I, I know you've had, that, had them on the show that what they do is they produce long scripted musical uh, episodes and that, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people listen to them. 
Um, and that, you know, how many people read a peer-reviewed article once it's published, if you're lucky? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, I think the, the last statistics I read that the, on average, eight people read an academic journal and, and over 50% of academic articles are only read by the editor, which is quite, you know, you don't really want to think about that with an academic career, that's for sure. Yeah. And so I think part of the struggle is to get um, tenure granting institutions um, and scientific societies and in academic societies more broadly to understand that. Um, you know, it's a legitimate form of knowledge production. It still has to be mediated um, and re reviewed, refereed by peers. Mm. We don't, we don't want to lose that, I don't think. No. Um, but there are, you know, a diversity of ways in which something like that could happen. Yeah. And I think another interesting facet, I think, for me is the way that is having a much more empirical understanding of what regular listening to podcasting means for our brains. I've listened to certain to certain podcasters and people who have talked about the way that they feel that that listening to podcasts is an escape from the bombardment of say social media and it has this therapeutic mindfulness effect but again that would I haven't read any or seen any kind of MRI or or sort of scientific based test that would would prove that or not it's very very intuitive I suppose what people are are, are talking about there yeah, I mean, I think you could have you could have entire departments that just study aspects of just study one small aspect of this. So mm. why do people choose to listen to one podcast rather than another? Yeah, I know that for me, it has a lot to do with how I'm feeling and how I want to feel sure how much attention I have, which means that something that podcasters are doing is that they're structuring their content so that it can be be predictable or kind of meta predictable, sure. um, where it'll either make you feel in a certain way or make you feel with some degree of certainty, a range of feelings. You know, I'm, I might not always feel resolution at the end of a particular storytelling podcast that I love. I might feel like, you know, love is complicated or humanity is cruel but has potential or, you know, that nature nature is incredible but in danger. And it might be that type of feeling that I'm looking for. It might be, you know, just a lot of the podcasting I'm listening to now when I'm not kind of binging through things uh, that for people that are going to speak at our conference is uh, just podcasts that help us, you know, help me and my partner fall asleep or drive the car to work in the morning. Sure. Um, people listen for news, but in a, you know, they want a particular tempo of information. And I think all of those things, figuring out how music fits into it um, and the kind of like the, the pathos uh, that, you know, some podcasters are really careful about including in a particular story and others kind of just yeah just keep throwing it in um i mean i don't know what uh, about in america i mean obviously there's a lot of political shows you know something like pod save america is like massive and over here we've had a similar explosion of political podcasts around brexit but a lot of them are kind of you know, they're, they're very irreverent and satirical and funny, particularly on, you know, I listen, you know, as you probably guess from the, the, the lefty liberal perspective. But I think a lot of that is to do with the fact that if if you just get the information straight, it just depresses you to the point of, you know, despair. So the idea of being able to have an informed and long form discussion that actually attacks the thing that you, you disagree with, but then is packaged in a way that you can... You can take it in, su in such a way that you still get the information, but it, it isn't going to drive you off the cliff kind of psychologically, you know? Yeah. And so you have you have all of these chat casts, which, you know, I don't think any of us, like some of us would have been able to go to barber shops back in the day <laughs> or 
to some to a pub or to some social center where we could just I don't think many of us do things like that anymore. I don't I don't know that many people in my generation just like go somewhere to hang out and talk. Mm. And so I think part of where we're getting that back is, um, you know, this kind of like steady little mumble drone in, in our ears of, you know, a few people that we've developed these really strong parasocial relationships to. Something I try to think about is like there are many podcasts that I whose voice I will hear much more often than any, you know, member of my family who whom I love and cherish and want to, you know, want their lives to be well and want to talk to them. But you know, now that I have the choice to just like pop something in my ear and have that soothe me, am I really gonna, you know, as I did when I was a kid, just go outside, take a walk and call someone when I can, you know, lay on the couch or drive or go to the gym and, you know, have have something else regulate my affect in that way. And then yeah, I mean, the, I think the question is listening is such a solitary thing. How and when does it build meaningful community? Yeah, that's a difficult problem, isn't it, that I think with podcasting. And and, and not just signaling, right? Not just, um, you know, having a catchphrase that you can throw in on Twitter, but like be able to have a transformative engagement with someone else where you learn about them, you reconsider something that you might have thought, you can express something to them that maybe you haven't expressed to yourself or anyone else yet. Mm. Um, and I know podcasts make that possible because they can um, change discourses on things and give us practice at listening to long conversations in ways that we wouldn't want to. A lot of our listening can be aspirational. Mm. It can be listening to people who, whom we want to be more like, whether because they're they're witty or they're friendly with each other or you know they have a particular point of view that we would love to um, inculcate ourselves with. I think, yeah, I think all of this deserves like um, oodles of, of, of study uh, and it'd be really, really exciting to, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's we're right at the beginning of all of that for sure. So tell me a little bit about the uh, the Sound Education Conference. I really would have loved to have come, but um, unfortunately time and money is uh, against me um, this time around. But maybe you could give a, a, a quick sort of pressy of some of the, the highlights. I mean, I don't, obviously you'll have the keynotes in place and, and things like that, but what are you expecting from the conference? Yeah, well, I'll just say we'll keep doing it, and we're gonna get you out here. Um, and uh, okay, great. <laughs> um, kind of, kind of a, a an open secret is uh, we're also opening to not uh, doing it in Boston for every single one. So we're thinking about right. ways of having you know pop up events in different places, having one day events. So we'll sort something out for sure. Yeah, not 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 too much FOMO. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so sound education. Um, it's a celebration of educational audio. Educational audio. You know, today to many of us means podcasting, but it could be radio, it could be MOOCs, it could be audiobooks, it could be the sound design that we hear in museums, um, it could be educational content on demand. And it was uh, the brainchild of uh, Zach Davis and Doug Metzger. Uh, Zach Davis uh, is the host of uh, Ministry of Ideas, which is an incredible podcast that comes out of uh, Harvard, Harvard Divinity School right here in town. Um, and it's all about the ways in which religion makes itself known um, in our, in you know, the history of our, our lives today, in in the ways that we think, the ways that we act, um, the kind of air we breathe, and the the conference. So last year, it you know it was supposed to be a kind of just pilot event, um, kind of a small get together of people to kind of learn from each other, from a few uh, luminaries in the field. And we had this huge outpouring of support and of also people that had something uh, that they wanted to say. And so it's divided into two parts um, uh, last year, uh, at least. One was 
a kind of day of practice that's all about um, how people make. Um, they talk about their craft, their theory, their methodologies, their team, their resources. And then we have a day where people get to just celebrate what it is they do. They get to give talks about the thing they love to talk about, the thing they podcast about. Um, and so this year uh, we're adding um, a, a bit more of an intentional workshop component. So last year we had workshops, today we'll have a full day of workshops. Um, that's a day just reserved for that. And we'll have, you know, we'll have evening keynotes, we'll have live podcast episodes, we'll have, uh, I can guarantee between this year and last year, um, you know, a plurality of your your favorite educational podcasters who are just like the most delightful people. And it's kind of like the, I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like the most interesting party that I, I've been to is just uh, all of these people that don't often get to meet their their audiences or each other. Um, you know, obviously that there are there are incredible venues like Third Coast, like Podcast Movement. But what we're creating is really a kind of space for people that are just love to learn and love to listen and love to learn through listening and want to meet each other. So there are our scholars that podcast from their kind of uh, academic perch. There are independent podcasters that crowdfund or um, that moonlight. There are people that are part of huge institutional behemoths, private or public. There are people that are part of kind of loose collectives. There are people that research. So I'm, I'm really pushing for there to be more academics within sound studies, uh, within um, anthropology, uh, within media studies that would come out, within science communication that would come out and just meet the practitioners so that we have a kind of theory and practice melding. And then there are just people that love to listen um, and that they're huge fans. Um, they haven't, you know, maybe they're curious about taking taking the plunge about learning how to edit or how to collect tape. Um, but they also just really love to just spend a few days uh, listening to these folks um, in person who they've, you know, they've been hearing in their ears right. for years. Brilliant. Do you, do you think that there is now becoming quite a big separation between what I would call I mean, in the broadest sense of the word, I suppose you'd call them independent podcasters, but podcasters that do podcasting for its own sake or do it because it's tied to another element of their career or, or life or interests. And this whole now consolidation and monetization process that seems to be going on in mainstream podcasting. Again, you sort of put, mentioned podcast movement there and, and sort of following some of the tweets from that. It's all about how to get bigger audiences, how to get more money, you know what I mean? And I think it, what's interesting to me is that that separation seems to be occurring in the period of time which you could call podcasting's adolescence. I mean, it's, what is it, 15 years old? And I think the great thing about podcasting in the early days was that it did level the playing field because the monetization was you know, difficult to do. I mean, nigh on impossible if you talk about the, the, the beginnings of, of iTunes. But now... You know, because of the different mechanisms, because of the the listenership, particularly in the United States, is, has got to a certain point where advertising is actually beneficial to podcasting. That that there is now this this separation, and it and it's becoming podcasting is maybe in a way that someone like me would say is is not not something I'm a big fan of, but it is moving into the sphere of being incorporated into much more mainstream structures of. Uh, commercial enterprise, let's say. I mean, definitely. I think I think we're seeing those tensions play out. Um, I mean, I think those tensions were 
are always there to some degree. I think people know when they're being sold to versus someone is uh, trying to build a more meaningful, you know, insofar as you can have a more meaningful connection under these kind of like capitalist distribution systems with someone you've never met anyway. But that's from someone that's trying to build a more meaningful kind of parasocial relationship with them. I think you can, you know, you can kind of tell that from the first few seconds of listening to someone talk, or we think we can at least. I mean, I, I try to hesitate from kind of saying where we're at with any part of that. Like I, you know, I, I'll read Nick Qua's newsletter. I'll, um, you know, I'll, I'll follow the tweet storms about this or that company making an exit or going under or canceling its subscription service or starting a new subscription service. Um, this or that, you know, brand that's starting their own branded podcast. I'll notice when the academics in particular who I love and follow, uh, when, you know, they, they decide to take the plunge. I mean, it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, it's the, it's the hype cycle. It's the promise of green pastures or a gold rush or whatever it is. Um, and I think you get, you know, all those types of like dynamics. Um, yeah, I, I know people have had like really strong opinions on your show about whether or not uh, any part of that is going to work or it's, you know, there's going to be like a, it's going to go into the dialectic and just like fall apart because it's doomed to fail. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not so... I'm not so sure about where it's going to go, honestly. Yeah. No, I think it's interesting in terms of the way, the way the, the, particularly the big players now are all seem to be jockeying position and, and looking like they are trying to create a, a scenario where their, their content has some kind of protection around it in some way, shape or form. And therefore then suddenly that, that leads on to who are, which stars are working for which network and who are you subscribing to and all of those, all of those kinds of things. But I think, you know, what's interesting, that isn't the background and the development of podcasting in the early phase. There is this bedrock of podcasters who are always going to be there you know what I mean, producing their stuff. And I guess maybe the, the, the big issue that they will have will be the d- discoverability problem when, you know, the oxygen is sucked out by, you know, big names and big, you know, star elements of, of podcasting, which, you know, we don't we don't have in the same way as film or TV, but it's certainly certainly getting there, getting to that point, um, I think. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful talk I once saw by a guy named Ben Thompson, who runs a newsletter called Stratechery, Stratechery uh, like strategy and tech. And he said that, that you know, um, there are only two ways to make money in media, bundling and unbundling. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know, I think I think we're all noticing this happening in the in the TV we watch mm. uh, and where, where we choose to kind of stream stream our video, um, that there's like a, a massive bundling going on. There was a wonderful period of unbundling before then. Yeah, and it seems like, yeah, I, I don't know if I would say which kind of phase podcasting is in uh, at the moment. I'm in, in particular, uh, so, you know, I'm really excited about and kind of scared uh, of where voice is going to take all this. So we just got the, the Google home in, the, in my house, much to the chagrin of my partner. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, sometimes it won't even play the, the podcast episode that I ask it to. But but I think in the future, you will be able to. And I, I say that, at, you know, we make these guesses about technology. Someone will spend a lot of money making it so that um, you can say something like, play me an inspiring story about the moon landing. Mm. and it'll pick something. It'll make a decision about what inspiring means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It'll make a decision about what is adequately, uh, you know, concerned with the moon landing. And, yeah, I... Lord knows once, uh, you know, these companies take a lot more attention to the podcasts that we listen to, and once they think they know what we like, that's one of the things I, I, 
I really enjoy right now is that I'm actually not being recommended a lot. No. Um, and that I, I kind of, when I look up in the sky, I see the same moon as you do um, on the iTunes homepage, uh, you know, at least in some parts of it and on the Spotify page, at least some parts of it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think, I mean, I'm, I'm writing a, a keynote at the moment, which is about... Um, podcasting's place in in the further integration of sound communication in our kind of media phenomenology so what i mean by that is the fact that we're going to be using keyboards less and we're going to be using voice activation a lot more and how that is the next thing that's coming in the next 20 or 30 years so my argument is is kind of like podcasting is the sort of emergence from the cave of that era so it's it's going to be interesting to see where where that goes further on. I think one of the interesting things is the is the Google search engine. So is that gonna is that gonna change us from from change the the sort of fundamentals of seriality that podcasting has been based on to individual subjects and themes being the focus. So it's all about how does how does the shift in technologies, whether they're big shift, big shifts or subtle shifts, change our method of interaction? Is something that that is really. I mean, obviously the the very the podcasting has, has exploded because of the development of the iPhone and the fact that there was an individual app that we could subscribe to. You know, you could say that that was the reason, rather than serial, that 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 podcasting became popular in sort of 2014 or exploded in in the big way it did in 2014, 2015. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I'll I'll take that argument for sure. But I'll say that there there were a lot of us I think um, that were really really excited about podcasting before then that were kind of trained to be first consumers that sure. you know kind of recursively shaped the medium. I remember I think my first podcasting was the Harry Potter podcasts that were around the the release of the sixth and seventh books and and the films around that time. Wow. Um, and I know a lot of kind of. Uh, folks that were teenagers and kind of tweens like me at that time, uh, I think, yeah, like, you know, we're, we're, we're taught a connection with the medium. I think a lot of us that were also used to things like talk radio mm. or like uh, NPR, once those things started becoming digital, got used to it um, and we're kind of, you know, we, we all we all have to be trained to listen to, you know, a voice in our headphones talking for a long time and to create the kind of, yeah. you know, requisite theater of the mind um for any particular format um yeah i mean i'm really excited where it's gonna go uh we have um you know we, we've met a lot of the folks working on the various kind of players and apps through sound education and i think all of them are thinking um pretty critically uh, about how to do that best and how to make discoverability something that that works for people and that doesn't kind of stumble um but there's also a lot of pressure to you know um I think increase listenership and then, you know, in general podcasts around the world and then find ways to get people to content to serve them with, you know, I'm making scare quotes here, what they want. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> the classic podcast. We're doing scare quotes in the air uh, move. Um, brilliant. Joseph, thanks so much for, for taking the time to speak to us. Is there anything that you're, any podcast that you're listening to right now that you, you would recommend that our listeners check out? Maybe something that they, they may not have heard of. Yeah, I think uh, there's a wonderful network here in Boston that I have to shout out called Hub and Spoke um, that is making a series of kind of, um, not a series, it's a, it's, a, it's a bunch of different shows, but each is concerned with deep ideas um, and is deeply beautiful and well thought out. Um, and so I would just shout them out. You can check them out at Hub and Spoke. Um, yeah, uh, 
I mean, a lot of my listening right now is either the daily in the morning um, or just catching up on podcasts uh, for folks that we've invited for sound education. And so that's just been, there are just dozens and dozens of those. I think you can see them on our site. One additional thing I wanted to mention um, is that we're, we're doing some work in my lab as well to try to take a look at how academics and podcast producers, uh, editors, hosts, um, co-create the performance of uh, um, academic speech on podcasts. Um, and Oh, wow, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, because academics speak in a particular type of way, um, and, you know, they have to learn how to speak in a different way uh, for podcasts, and then yet still a different type of speech actually ends up making it on the air. So we're taking a look at um, the way that kind of language is transformed through that process uh, and how it might be different um, from kind of the affordances of other media. So I, I, I'm, I don't have any results there yet. Um, we, we still have the, the grants in, but it'd be really exciting to, to share some of that uh, when it's out. Joseph, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on and speaking to us. I hope you'll come back on, you know, in a little while to tell us how the, uh, how the conference went and uh, maybe we can sort of develop on some of these conversations around what sort of research is going on around podcasting a little bit further. I would love that. Um, and we'll, we'll make sure to get you out here to Boston sometime soon. That'd be great. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. 